0: of Mark. Once again, I'm actually going to uh, be in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. We're not going to quite finish the the chapter today, but I want to start before we get into Mark with a passage from Hebrews, just to remind you about a verse that we studied in Hebrews this uh, 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 last year. It's Hebrews 4, uh, 15 through 16, and it's, I think it's one of the more comforting, more, uh, just, it's such an informative verse in, in the book of Hebrews. Let me read it to you. I, I, I guarantee you're, you're familiar with it. It says, "...for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace." that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So one of those fundamental truths about Christianity and about our Savior is that Jesus is 200%. He's 100% God, that is, as part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, Jesus is the Son, and that means he is co-equally God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So he is without a, without a doubt 100% God. That's what we learn in Scripture. But also, when it comes to Jesus, he is 100% man. And so that we, we tend to, to rightly overemphasize the fact that he is 100% God, but we can't forget and we must also overly emphasize the fact that he is 100% man. He understands what it's like to put on flesh and live a life on this earth. That makes him relatable in a few different ways. He can sympathize with our weakness. He knows what it's like to live in a body like you and I. And, and we can learn from him as we study moments, especially moments where that weakness of the flesh was felt by Jesus. And I think that the passage that we're studying today in Mark is one of those moments. It's one of those moments in which he was feeling, he was feeling the the, the stress that comes with life. Right? He was feeling the pressure, a lot of it. He was overwhelmed. He was dealing with so many critics and, and so many people that had that were routinely opposing him. And so he was feeling the whole gamut of emotions. Especially most recently, anger and, and, and he was grieved. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be to be grieved about something. Like I, I just think that's so important for us to know that he had those emotions and he felt the stresses of life. Like we get to see how he dealt with it. And so again, I love the gospels as an opportunity to observe the type of person who Jesus was, but also just get to see how he responded to different scenarios and things that went on in his life and ministry. Because if you and I want to say that we're Christian, if we're going to have the audacity to say we are followers of Christ, we better know who he was. If we want to model our lives after Jesus, we need to be really familiar with that life and how he lived it. And so in the most recent passages Mark has gone out of his way to share with us that this is the point in his ministry in which things were taken off. They were getting wildly, this this ministry was getting wildly popular. Word had spread, and with that came a a lot of pressure. Again, critics were beginning to investigate. They were criticizing every word that came out of his mouth. They were criticizing the way he practiced his faith. They were criticizing even the miracles. That he did. And so this was getting so bad. I'm sorry, I got my, my mic pack in the wrong, wrong spot there. Uh, it was getting to the point in which Mark even emphasizes that the Pharisees and the Herodians, that was the last passage, we, the last verse we studied, the Pharisees and the Herodians were now working together to plot against Jesus to destroy him. And so now, for you and I, we're reading about the okay. The Herodians and the Pharisees are working together. Okay, well, these two groups uh, are uh, teaming up against Jesus. So we're, we see that, and, and we kind of we 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 don't catch the the just the, the the strange situation that that is. If you were a first century reader, you would you would read it like this: the Pharisees and the Herodians are working together to destroy Jesus. Of all the people groups to work together, these two people groups. Are trying to kill Jesus? That's weird because they normally don't like each other. So the Herodians in Scripture, the Herodians—this, these are descendants from from Herod the Great. And so the Herodians were were—that um, that was a label you would give to like the aristocrats of the of that day, the nobles, the pinky out crowd. That was the Herodians, and so. The, the Pharisees were not fans of the Herodians. And in northern Galilee, again, I'm going to put, imagine this is our imaginary map behind us that doesn't exist that I always refer to. The northern part of Israel, Galilee, that was now controlled by a descendant of Herod the Great, known as Herod Antipas. And so he, he'll, he'll pop up in the, in the text a few times when you're reading through the Gospels. And so he and his ilk, were Roman sympathizers. That's why the Pharisees would not have been fans. So the Herodians were Jews, but they were Jews that were in charge. And they were in charge under the authority of Rome, and as in Rome allowed them to be in charge. And they, were, they, they worked alongside and along with the Roman authorities. And so the Pharisees would look at the Herodians and be like, oh, normally they'd be like, you guys disgust me. You work with the you make it easier on Rome to control us. We can't stand you guys. But now the Pharisees are buddying up, they're chummy with the Herodians because they want to get rid of Jesus. They don't like the fact that he's popular. He's not the Messiah they were hoping for. They have a lot of problems with Jesus. And so they're going to work together with the Herodians to see what they can do to destroy Jesus. This would have also tipped off to a first-century reader. That if the Herodians are getting involved, literally everyone knows who Jesus is at this point. Literally everyone is aware of the ministry of Jesus if the Herodians are now sticking their fingers into things. So let's pick up in chapter 3 of Mark and let's pick up at verse 7 and just read verses 7 and 8 to see what Mark wants to emphasize here next. A great crowd follows Jesus. It says Jesus withdrew with his disciple I'm sorry hang on a second yes Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Adumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon when the great crowd heard of all the things he was doing they came to him okay so this is Mark's way of saying everybody is coming to see Jesus From every direction, from Galilee, again, here's our map, northern Israel, everybody's coming to see Jesus, and this is where he's currently at in northern Israel, but also people are traveling from Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea, so Judea would have been the southern region of Israel, and then within Judea is the city of Jerusalem where the temple is, And then Adumea would have been even south of that. That would have been the deep south. People are coming from the deep south even to see Jesus. And sometimes when I see a name like Adumea, I'm like, why is that the name of the city? What is that? Um, That actually, for you nerds out there, Adumea is the Latin version of the name Edom, which is another name for Esau. And so, like in the Old Testament, (laughs) did you see that? That was a stink bug that just came from the heavens (laughs) Uh, right in front of me sorry it it just crash landed hanging out so I'm just gonna leave him right there Uh, so anyway so so in the Old Testament when you would uh, see the Edomites for example those were the descendants of Esau so they were in the deep south and that's now known as the Latin version of of Edom is the Idumea okay so anyway from the, from the northern part of Israel to the southern part of Israel, everyone is flocking to Jesus, even from beyond the Jordan River. Well, As you can see on the map here, the Jordan River is, is on the eastern side of Israel. If you cross the Jordan River, you're beyond the Jordan River that way. So people are coming from whatever's that way over to here to see Jesus people are from from Tyre and Sidon which you can see right up there in the, it's the coastal region at the northwest northwest side of the map i mean they're coming from that direction from every direction people are flocking to see Jesus now and so every habitable area of Israel and beyond so most commentators would say that the crowds at this point of course we see it uh, explicitly in the text later when he's feeding uh, the, uh, the, the, the massive crowd, the 5,000 and their families with uh, lo- the loaves of bread and, and the fish. But in this moment, they're estimating it's a crowd like that, like in the tens of thousands, in the tens of thousands. So when Jesus is out preaching and teaching and doing miracles, crowds in the tens of thousands are showing up and trying to get to him. And so no wonder he's starting to feel the pressure. No wonder he's starting to feel a little overwhelmed. It's very reasonable that if you're living in the flesh, you're feeling a, a little, uh, you know, uneasy about things. He was starting to feel uh, so, so uneasy that he was starting to put together a, a contingency plan uh, just to make sure th- these massive crowds don't stampede him. Because when people are traveling from that far, if they're, if they're traveling from the deep south, As you can see, that's about 100 miles up to the top there to get to Jesus. 100 miles. Now just think, you're in the deep south, you hear about the ministry of Jesus, you hear about the healings that are taking place, you're hearing about some of the teaching, but that's kind of a side note. You just want to get to Jesus to get healed. You have someone in your family that needs healed, and you get a plan together and travel 100 miles at best on a horse or donkey, that's a long way. What a commitment that must be. If you traveled that far, you're going to make sure you actually come into contact with Jesus, right? You wouldn't travel all that way and then see a massive crowd of tens of thousands of people and be like, oh, he looks busy. Let's just go ahead and head back. <laughs> right? That's not going to happen, right? You came all that way. We're getting to Jesus. Right? You've been yelling at the kids the whole way there, and you it's happening now. You are going To come into contact with him. So when people finally arrived to get to Jesus, they were committed to actually come into contact with him. And he was feeling that. So he actually put together a a contingency plan to keep himself safe. (laughs) Listen to this in verse 9. And he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. And so he would intentionally engage these tens of thousands of people at the shoreline. For, for a couple of reasons, one of which because it was the safest thing to do. It was the safest thing. It kept them all on this side in front of him rather than being surrounded by this massive crowd. It kept them all in front of him where he could address them and teach them. But it was also a, a contingency plan to, to be able to escape or, or get out of there, or get out of the way of this massive crowd if they started to trample him. And so you got to believe that like Peter probably put this plan together or, or played a role in this. Like remember, they were doing ministry out of his house, and we saw how that went. They were pulling the, the ceiling apart and coming through the roof to get to Jesus, right? The crowds were literally tearing his house apart. So p- Peter's probably like don't do it out of the house. Let's move it down the road. And it's so I got a boat. I'm a fisherman. We can just do this by the sea. As a matter of fact, you can keep them on the shoreline there. And I just bet you like Peter's the one running security in the boat like ready to to escape. Like I mean, it just makes sense. This is the guy that we'll see later on when they try to arrest Jesus. He pulls out his sword and 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 whacks off the guy's ear just because he missed his face. He was trying to kill him. But like Peter is the one that is protective of Jesus, and he's just he's got that assertive attitude that wants to run security detail, I bet. And so he's the one in the boat, in the getaway vehicle, in case things go bad. Uh, but there Jesus is, again, for him, he's on the shoreline to teach these people. They're coming for the miracles, he's showing up for the teaching. He, come, he, he has come to preach a historic message, a message that would change all of time from that point forward, he was teaching and preaching the gospel, but there was always this tension between what Jesus wanted in those moments and what people wanted out of those moments. It's the same tension that exists today, by the way. Jesus would get frustrated because people would come to him for the wrong reasons. He would get frustrated because they were they were engaging in, in his ministry for selfish reasons. We see in John six after he feeds the. The the crowd, um, the the loaves of bread and the fish, he he was he says in John six twenty six, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, uh, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you are seeking me not because you saw a miracle and understood the purpose of that miracle to inform who I am and what I'm saying. You just want more miracles. And so people, it, it, this this is a tension that that develops in in the gospel message and so he was frustrated about that people missed the point they missed jesus like you would you miss the forest for the trees like again this is still a problem today people want signs they want miracles more than they want a savior they want their problems fixed right now and they can't see past their problems right now to appreciate who jesus is they just want jesus to fix those immediate problems so i was talking to an individual here recently. When you're a pastor and people know you're a pastor and they don't go to your church and things like that, like if they just know you're a pastor, uh, they know they have the right to just dump on you and all their problems and frustrations. And and I have figured out that I can be in the cereal aisle at Walmart, and I could be there for an hour, because if someone sees me and wants to start to share things with me or. You know, or if I, if I board a plane, sit next to someone they find out I'm a pastor, that either goes really bad or really good uh, one, of the, one way or the other. But sometimes people just, they know you're a pastor and they just start to unload a lot of their uh, frustrations and, and things that they're dealing with. And this was happening to me uh, not long ago with someone who was just, man, full of frustration. They claimed to be a believer and they, were just, they knew I was a pastor and they were just letting it all out. They blurted out so many different things that were problems that they perceived to be major problems, not only in their personal life, but in our society and so on and so forth. And they were just unloading, rattling off one thing after another. I was complete and to- completely and totally overwhelmed by the amount of different things. And this conversation was now getting past the hour mark. And I had maybe said three or four words at this point in time. I mean, they're just unloading again. And, and I was trying to just... Like, how, how can I as a pastor comfort them in this moment? They're so frustrated and overwhelmed and stressed out. Maybe I can just find some common ground and just try to be, bring some peace to a lot of the frantic unloading that's taking place. And I just said, boy, will not it be nice? Uh, and isn't it nice? I think I said, isn't it nice as a, as a believer now? We have hope that we can see past a lot of these problems. That we have, we, we get to live with a hope that one day Christ is going to return and he's going to, Make all things new, and he's going to rid the world of problems permanently. Sin will be gone, all the tears will be wiped away, all the sorrow will be no more. That's, isn't that a peaceful thought to remind yourself of when you're just totally overwhelmed by so many things? And they looked at me, and they got even more frustrated, looked at me and was like, "I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in this. They literally were saying, no, I need that would be too easy, I think was their exact words. That would be too easy. We need to fix this, and God needs to do that, and and, and God needs to come in here and fix this and make this that way. And just totally bypass the whole purpose of the gospel and, 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 and the future that we're headed to because they were so focused on what they felt needed to happen right now. And what they felt God needed to be involved with and how he needed to fix things in the moment. Again, just not interested in a savior. They're interested in the signs. Not interested in what Christ came to be and to do as establishing his kingdom and being our Lord. They just wanted things the way they thought should be fixed right here and right now. Well, the masses in this moment were were beginning to do a lot of that similar thing. They, they, They were missing the message trying to bypass it and get to the miracles. And so in this moment, though, there are two groups that are pressing in on Jesus that Mark's, Mark wants to make us aware of here in verses 10 and through 12. It says, For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known so as we he tells us again what he's told us several times in the in in this massive crowd that is following him around most of those people want healed most of those people want to get to him and get a miracle but also in that crowd were people with unclean spirits now this isn't the first time he's come upon an unclean spirit remember this is one of the first miracles that happens in the gospel of mark he's in the synagogue in capernaum and a man with an unclean spirit addresses him and, and actually, you know, says, you are Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. Remember, he, just, he, he addresses him very directly. And then now here these unclean spirits are like, you're the Holy One. You're the Son of God. Like they're, they're saying it again. They're, they're calling out his name and saying who he is and what his role is. Now, what's happening when that takes place? Well, here's what's not happening. The, the unclean spirits are not addressing Jesus and calling out who he is in the sense of saying, hey, everybody, this is Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, just spreading the word so everybody knows that that's who that is and have a nice day. It's, it, that's not how they, he's, they're, you know, they're not saying ch- come check out this guy. Rather, the demons are calling out Jesus and his name and his role to try to gain authority over him. So think of it like this. Like when your parents say your entire name to exercise authority over you. Cody David Parman, right, if I start to hear my entire name, oh, okay, I'm, I'm now attentive, yes. You know, that, and we do that to our kids now. We call out their entire name to exercise authority over them. Nolan Philip Parman, he just like jolted a little bit probably right there. Uh, uh, no, he didn't. He's looking at me like, Dad, I told you not to use me in a sermon in, anymore. So, And I'm just proving that I can whenever I want. So when you, when you say someone's entire name, it, it exercises some authority over that person. Well, that, that's actually an ancient belief. That goes way back. And so in this day, there was a general, uh, generally held belief that if, especially if you were dealing with a demon, if you knew the name of that demon it helped to exercise authority over that demon, and vice versa. If the demon knew your name, they could call out your name and exercise authority over you. This did not only take place in that realm, but also in any realm. If you were uh, wanting to address the mayor of the city, you would say their whole name and their role as a mayor in in an attempt to intimidate them and to gain authority in the conversation. And so this is, this is a cultural understanding uh, that they would have had when they read this text. And so this is what's taking place when the demons are saying Jesus' name and who he is. They're trying to exercise authority over him. And we see it later in Mark when Jesus comes across another demon, he actually asks the name of the demon. Now, Jesus doesn't have to ask the name of the demon in order to gain control of the demon, but he does ask the name of the demon. In, in Mark 5, we'll see, what is your name? And what does the demon say? We are legion, for we are many. Like, let's not get specific about names here, Jesus. Uh, there's a the bunch of us in here. Um, but Jesus doesn't know, need to know anybody's name. He, he, The point that Mark is trying to make is that every time a demon comes in, into contact with Jesus and tries to exercise authority, they fail. Every time Jesus comes into contact with a demon, he doesn't need to play games or or have any special incantation or anything like that, or cultural understanding, he comes out ahead because he has authority over them, no matter what. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus is saying to them, you are not going to prematurely reveal my identity. My ministry here will not be dictated by you. This will play out exactly how God the Father wants it to play out. Nonetheless, though, Jesus is starting to get stressed. He needs to regroup. He's dealing with the the critics. He's dealing with the unclean spirits. He's dealing with the the crowds that don't understand him. He's dealing with people trying to get healed. He's got to regroup. He's got to catch his breath. And here's what he does here in verses 13 through 19. He went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonergus. I looked up how to pronounce that name, and I have no idea. Uh, but I know what it means, because it says right here that is sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What I thought would be helpful for us to think about as we read through that particular paragraph is we we know that Jesus is dealing with all this pressure. We know that he's dealing with all of this stress. We know that he's dealing with all of this frustration. The question we need to to ask right now as we study this, how does the one we call Savior deal with all of that stress? How does he deal with life when it feels like it's closing in on you? How is it that he can, uh, what what does he do when he is uh, feeling that weakness in the sense that he can sympathize with our weakness? How does he respond you know, again, if, if, if we are followers of Jesus who aspire to live life like he lived life, are we coping with stress and pressure in the same way he is? I think there's three things. Three really just practical things we can take away from this moment in the ministry of Jesus. Here's the first one. When he was feeling the pressure, he got away. He got away. He went up on the mountain, it says. He needed to be alone. Is it a relief to you to know that Jesus needed to be alone sometimes? It is to me. Like, just the thought that he, he just needed to get away from everyone for a little bit. Like, I deeply care for people, and I know you do too, but sometimes you just need to be alone. Even Jesus knew what that feeling was like. You know, have you been in one of those seasons of life in which you just keep pouring yourself out and pouring yourself out and and investing in other people and their problems and empathizing and mourning and listening and and you're just pouring yourself out to the point in which you feel like you're drowning? Jesus knows what that's like. He needed to get away on the mountain. You know, I've learned in ministry that if if is if you're in one of those seasons and if you're in one of those moments you just got to step off the treadmill and catch your breath because if you don't get away if you don't step off the treadmill and catch your breath right that's that's when things get really dark that's when things can really go bad in your life personally that's where anxiety and depression and insecurities and frustrations and stress that's when all that stuff can feel like they 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 you know, they, they multiply by 10 and, and 20 and 100. So they just keep getting bigger and bigger in a, in a faster way. Jesus knew that sometimes you just got to get away. You know, I, I've learned another thing, and this is not a complaint. This is just reality. If you need a break and you need to get away, no one's going to give it to you. You got to take it. It's just something you got to take. You know if you're feeling that way, and you know if you need a break, and you need to just take it. And this is a moment in which Jesus understood, I got to get away. I'm frustrated. This is stressing me out. And so he got away. You know, my, my day to get away is Friday. That's my day off. Like Friday is my day. Like Friday is like your Saturday for me. Like a Thursday night feels like my Friday night and, and my Friday feels like my Saturday. And so I love Fridays. It's, it's the moment in which I try to make it a point every day of my week to take a breath. And what do I do to take a breath? You know, I take the kids to school. Amanda goes to work. I'm alone on that day typically. And so what do I do? I I love to do some of those just mundane tasks. I like to go grocery shopping. You know what I mean? Alone. There's something about like I'm alone. This is fun. And I like to clean my house and do laundry because I'm alone. And it's just like, again, it's just one of these mindless tasks that you can do. And there's something I like about that. It gets me away. I try not to answer my phone. I'm, I'm a really bad texter on a Friday, purposefully. It's not you, it's me. I, I know like, if, if I'm having the best possible Friday I can have and the weather's nice, I walk out into my backyard into the woods with my dog, and I sit on a rock and I stare at a creek. That's my happy place, like just sitting there, just listening to the woods. I love it. It just, just to get away. And, you, you know, when I come out of those moments, like, I feel like I need those, those, that time to get my care meter back to where it needs to be. Because, you know, when you're tired and stressed out and you've been pouring yourself out, you get to the point in which you just don't care. Right? You get, you know, when the person in the cereal aisle at Walmart wants to tell you all their life problems, I want to be there for people. That's my job. That's my passion. But when I'm exhausted in the middle of that puking out of thoughts, I'm just like, I don't care. I got problems too. Right? Get get some cigarettes or something. I don't know. Deal with it. That's that's my that begins to be my posture whenever I'm too exhausted. Deal with it yourself. And then I know when I get in that moment, you're like, if you're visiting here today, (laughs) your pastor's awful. (laughs) He's a bad person. (laughs) No, but I, I know that, like, I need those moments alone. Like, when I come out of those moments after I've been alone for a little bit and I can hear the silence a little bit, I care again. Oh man, I wonder how so-and-so's doing. I should probably check up on that person who talked to me in the cereal aisle. Let me let me, you know, shoot that person a text and, and follow up on what's going on in that issue. But if I don't get those times alone, my care meter tanks. What else did Jesus do? Well, he did something in this text that's not there. In Luke's parallel account to this moment, we get one additional detail. In Luke's parallel account, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says when he went up on the mountain, he went up there to pray. It says he did all night. He continued in prayer all night. And so when he was alone, he understood something that you and I need to understand when we're, when we're alone. You're never really alone. When you're alone, you should be utilizing that time alone at least partially. Jesus dedicated all of the time but we should at least partially dedicate that time to prayer. Pray without ceasing, right? Take, cast your burdens upon him because he cares for you. You aren't capable of just constantly pouring yourself out forever and carrying everyone's burdens and solving everyone's problems 24-7 for your entire life. You aren't capable of doing that. You'll burn out. But Jesus is capable. He wants us to constantly come to him and 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 let him pour into us, right? So he, he is, that's why we need prayer. And so again, on my day off, if I make it to the rock, if I'm really firing on all cylinders while I'm staring at the creek and petting my dog, I'm also praying, I'm also talking to God about what's going on in my life. And again, when I come out of a moment like that, I feel more put together, I feel more confident, I feel more ready. I feel repaired, able, sober-minded. I feel more thoughtful. You ever get in those seasons of life once you're like, I'm not a thoughtful person anymore. Well, you're probably not praying. You're probably not resting. We need those times to recharge so we can be thoughtful and considerate and compassionate. So Jesus, he got away. Jesus prayed. And the third thing he did, which is very obvious in the text, he lived in community with the, with others. And so I'm probably oversimplifying what he did as he gathered that community specifically of the 12, right? He is he's going beyond just living in community. He's establishing apostles so that they can teach with his authority, so that they can do sign miracles with his authority like he does. It's a really big deal in the text. But at its roots, the foundation of what he's doing is he's very responsibly surrounding with him surrounding himself with people who are also believers and and doing things in a very intentional way within that community to bring glory to the Father. The same thing you and I need to do. So do you get away? Do you pray? Do you surround yourself with people who believe and want to spread the gospel? You know, our response uh, in our Christian lives should be to model our lives after him. So let me frame it a different way. to to close my sermon how are you feeling on the if if I had the scale the stress scale where are you at on the scale today how how are you doing there are you at the end of your rope are you burnt out are you just barely hanging on do you feel tired and stressed all the time is that your go-to excuse and it's just it just keeps coming back keeps coming back keeps coming back well are you going to do something about it are you utilizing the example that Christ is for us Maybe you're doing one of these things well. Maybe you do a pretty good job at getting away, getting away from people, but you do it to the point where you're not living in community. Maybe you maybe you do live in community. Maybe you do get alone, but maybe you're not praying. And then the one that makes the least sense maybe you're maybe you're praying, but you're never getting alone with God. Maybe that you're you're oh, I pray. With my kids for bed and i pray when you close the sermon and then next week i'll pray again when you close the sermon and i'll pray with my kids for bed i'll pray before meal but are you getting alone with god and really praying this is the example that we have these are the skills that our savior wants us to learn so that we can cope we can cope in a way that allows us to live with hope and allows us to bring glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just the practical ways in which we get to observe your life and then model our life after yours. Lord, I thank you for the concept of prayer, that we don't have to just get away from people, curl up in fetal position, and ignore everyone including you when we're stressed and at the end of our rope we can do something more constructive I bet you every person here has been in the fetal position stressed out but Lord we can we, we have something to utilize in that moment it's you we're not alone we're never alone we can pray we can go to you in prayer we can we can even Go to you in prayer on behalf of those around us that we live in community with and have a commitment to your kingdom with. Lord, we thank you for all of the ways in which you instruct us by not only what you say, but what you do. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.